0: Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Dammer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on this episode of Afternoon Light, I'm joined by Dean Kotlowski, who is the Fulbright Distinguished Chair in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the Australian National University and Professor of History at Salisbury University, Maryland, United States. It's wonderful to have an international guest on Afternoon Light podcast. Dean, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you here at Melbourne University in the old quadrangle at the Robert Manzies Institute. Today we're talking about a comparative study of Indigenous policymaking in the United States and Australia and one of the reasons why you're here in Australia. And I do think it would be really useful for our audience to understand what the history of Native American dispossession and experience with white settlement was in a very sort of potted history because I'm not sure if Australians are totally aware of the circumstances.
1: Well, we would begin with first contact with the arrival of Europeans or the invasion of Europeans of North America.
0: And is that how the Native Americans characterize the arrival of Europeans into America, an invasion, or is that contested?
1: It is a phrase in terms of the academic circles that I think came into circulation about a half century ago with a book by a man named Francis Jennings called The Invasion of America. And it was provocative at the time. And I think it depends who you talk to in terms of Native America, whether or not they're most comfortable with the term invasion. Obviously, people who take more of an outspoken oppositional point of view are going to adopt that kind of language. That's why I use both of them in terms of first contact and invasion. So you had the dispossession of Native peoples, and the interesting thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little later, is that American Indians were written into the U.S. Constitution, but as talking about primarily European Americans, Europeans came to the United States moved west, the dispossession continued, wars happened, obviously. Some of used the word genocide because of the decimation of the Indian population, the indigenous population. There was the removal of the Cherokees west because, again, European Americans wanted the land, and they felt In their own minds, this was the way to accomplish that, and in their own minds, to save lives, to move tribes west. Now, the Western tribes, again, there would have been more wars. There was the massacre at Wounded Knee, and that kind of really, in 1890, and that really ends the phase of this warfare. Treaties between the U.S. government and Indian tribes were signed. Probably the last major one was in 1868. That was with the Sioux. So treaties were an important part of the history of American Indians and American Indian relations with, again, the non-Indian or the non-Indigenous population. So after the wars were over, the U.S. government, reformers in the East, they increasingly talked about you know, the Indian problem, what would be done with the American Indian. That was their perspective. So the first policy was a policy of assimilation, which started with the Dawes Act in 1887, which was a formula to transform what we're seeing as nomadic, hunter-gatherer American Indians seen by the non-indigenous population to transform Indians into settled farmer citizens. They would have the right to take a certain amount of land from the reservations and to become individual yeoman farmers, something very typically American, something like 160 acres. And so the idea here was that American Indians would eventually become part of the wider mainstream, And the land base of these reservations, which was recognized by treaty law, so these are federally recognized tribes, we could talk about this a little later, there are state recognized tribes and things like that. Let's stick with federally recognized tribes in the West with their treaties, with the federal government and their reservations. Those reservations, because of this allotment policy where individual Indians could take land and set themselves up as independent farmers, that land base shrunk, but it never vanished. And it was very clear that American Indians, in terms of their unique identity and Treaties, land base, that was not going to disappear, at least anytime soon. So, beginning in the late 1920s with Herbert Hoover, but especially under Franklin Roosevelt, there was a desire to try and be more sensitive to and supportive of American Indian culture and institutions. So, we had what was called the Indian New Deal, the Indian Reorganization Act. And this was much celebrated at the time, I think. The allotment laws were suspended. So Indians could no longer take individual tracts of land and things like that. That was completely downplayed. And instead, tribes as an institution were given a new lease on life, in a way. Under the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, American Indian tribes could officially incorporate themselves, write constitutions, and hold elections. So it's a recognition of a kind of American Indian tribal sovereignty. And the person who put this through was the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which had existed since the 1800s. His name was John Collier, and he's a major figure here, to say the least. And he was head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs for 12 years. Probably headed it for longer than any other person. I can't think of anyone else. And yet, at the same time, if you look at the Indian Reorganization Act, you have to say that it has subtle or not so subtle assimilationist tendencies in it. Because you have to ask yourself, is incorporation, constitution writing, and elections. Are those Western European non-Indigenous ideas, or are they ideas that are embedded in American Indian culture? I think the answer is obvious. Right. Sure.
0: But what was there opposition to this reorganization act from the Native Americans or were they quite in favor of this idea of sovereignty and writing their own constitution? Most or? of them
1: joined and yeah. they went along with it. The Navajo didn't. They resisted. And then many years later when we had the rise of what was called Red Power protest in the late 1960s, the takeover of Wounded Knee in South Dakota, the hamlet of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation. That originated with a dispute between an elected tribal government and an older hereditary tribal leadership. So you see that division occurring and that it existed. And many American Indian tribes would not make decisions through elections, where somebody wins and somebody loses and the majority try to do things in a more conversational, consensual, discussion-oriented way. The other thing the Indian New Deal did, and this was very much part of the larger New Deal, was to try to bring modernization to reservations.
0: So like electricity and healthcare, education, getting the systems.
1: most out of the yeah. out of the land,
0: right? Agriculture Agri- techniques, right, yeah. right,
1: right, right, right. And you're going to see that in the post-war period. So the post-war period is really interesting. We've sometimes celebrated the Indian New Deal, and we see a kind of disjunction for what happens beginning in the late 1940s. And you can almost say, if you want to be neat about it, 1945. There's no single date. We have the development of what's called determination policy. So what was termination? It sounds really awful.
0: It does sound rather frightening. Uh, to yeah. be honest.
1: Even the name, I mean, it was frightening to American Indians. Very few tribes were, quote unquote, terminated. But just the fact that this was on the table and the terminology caused a tremendous fear in tribes. So what was termination? It was a policy to terminate to end the federal trust relationship with federally recognized tribes. So just really briefly, federally recognized tribes, let's say in the West, like the Navajo, the Sioux, we could go into any number of the Hopi, et cetera, et cetera. They had treaties. The federal government acted as a trustee of their land. So land couldn't be sold or couldn't be easily sold. And the government was protecting them. And they had this land base. In some cases, certainly wasn't what had existed before contact, but it was not insignificant in terms of the size, especially out west.
0: Yeah, and they had complete sovereignty over that. So there wasn't say you were a farmer, non Native American farmer, could you make an arrangement to farm Native American lands?
1: Well, I think that would have been a decision up to the tribe in consultation with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But I think let's stick with the idea of sovereignty. There was a sovereignty and a relationship here, a direct almost relationship between the tribe and the federal government. The state is not really involved in this. So that's a kind of interesting and very important, I think, difference with Australia. So it's fascinating. But at any rate, what would happen, the government acted like a trustee. And this allowed Indian tribes to be separate and distinct from the rest of the country. At a time, coming out of World War II and getting into the post-war period, into the Cold War period, when a lot of people were saying, shouldn't we all be one country? And a lot of liberals were saying, shouldn't we all be equal?
0: And we're using the American yes. meaning of liberals, so left-wing people. Right, left-wing
1: people, people were the heirs of the Enlightenment. Yes. And people in the post-war period who said, African-American rights is coming to the forefront. African Americans want equality. They want integration. A lot of these liberals in the United States sense, what they said was, well, Indians want the same thing. Of course, right? We all want to be equal. We all want to be part of this great America, this prosperous America.
0: And as we'll get onto this, but of course, similar thing was happening in Australia, right. this sort of push for equality. We had Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Paul Hasluck, very mm-hmm. much committed liberal, more in the Australian sense of smaller liberal, committed to drive for equality for Indigenous Australians. So that was definitely going on in the 40s and 50s.
1: It's an important comparison Mm. with Hasluck Mm. as Minister of the Territories and his policy of assimilation because termination essentially was an assimilationist policy. It was designed to eliminate the distinctiveness of American Indians and to transform them once again into people who are part of the mainstream. Now, I'll tell you this. In the United States at the time, because assimilation, that term, was associated with the Dawes Act and allotment and something that was a very forceful type of assimilation. People didn't like to use that term.
0: Even back then? In the 50s. In the 50s, right.
1: So the term that was used was integration.
0: Right, so in Australia assimilation is confidently used yes. with no negative, well at least not in general society, no negative connotations. It's considered something that is a good thing to be incorporating Indigenous Australians into to society.
1: phrase that liberals like to use in the United States was integration.
0: Integration. The integration
1: of, of the American Indian into the mainstream. Able to move with freedom in and out. Yeah.
0: But it was assimilation. This is my argument.
1: It was essentially assimilation. Now, in Australia, around 1965, people started to talk more about integration and make a distinction between the two. That integration is something where you could have more of your culture, culture you were born in, keep more of it. I think this is the assumption. And being able to move on your own terms into the mainstream. But what happens when the government, whether it's the Commonwealth government in Canberra or the U.S. federal government is essentially on the side of integration. I think it becomes assimilation. And what you did not have in the United States—we'll stick to the U.S. here—you did not have with a lot of these post-war liberals, forty, late forties, fifties, and sixties, up to Nixon. You didn't have a companion celebration of native cultures for the sake of native cultures. You didn't see that it coexisting alongside this talk of integration. There was a lot of talk about well, we're we meaning the U.S. government. We're trying to modernize countries of the global south, helping them out with international technical assistance, what was called the point four program. Why don't we do the same thing with American Indians? And you could look in a way at those kind of globalized programs as being a kind of assimilation on a larger scale, but you see a similar impulse in both areas.
0: So we're observing an aspiration for a monoculture, single American identity and culture where the Native Americans fit under that umbrella, as well as European, African Americans. Everyone's coming under this, we're American, we have one culture, one identity.
1: And it is all defined by the assumptions that the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, things that come out of the European Enlightenment, that this is the way in which people are going to quote-unquote advance or progress and become integrated together. Mm. And I think that's very, very important. So those assumptions are definitely there. And those assumptions were also very much present in Australia.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So the integrationist impulse, I mean, you would think, when you think of reform in the United States, you think of the Democrats' So there's a slight difference here, I think, between the Democrats and the Republicans in the 40s and the 50s. Some Republicans in the 1950s, they wanted a very fast termination. The U.S. Congress passed a resolution in 1953 called House Concurrent Resolution Number 108, which is infamous in American history. I know if this is going into a little bit more detail. I'm going to explain this. It actually listed the tribes that would be terminated.
0: And why were they terminating them? Because they wanted to integrate Native Americans into society, so there was no need to have a tribe? Absolutely. And and
1: these were tribes who were identified for political reasons, for whatever reason. They were largely, again, tribes in the West. And some of the tribes, there was an assumption, well, they have reached a stage of economic, quote-unquote, progress or advancement where they could be cut free. So this is the Republican idea. You free people. They had a sense that Indians were wards of the government. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was socialism. And this way we can free the American Indian. And they can pursue their own destiny. They can become entrepreneurs. All of this sort of thing. If I seem like I'm being hard on the Republicans, I mean they wanted to have fairly quickly, and I'll talk about one tribe in a minute in particular. What about liberals? Coming out of World War II, how did American liberals what did they compare reservations to? I'm asking this a rhetorical question. Coming out of, I tell this to my students, coming out of World War II, they looked at reservations. Did they go out and say, oh, here's a diverse culture, let's celebrate it? One response was to say, oh, look at all these poor people. Let's do something to help them. Yeah. Let's modernize. But coming, getting back to my original point, coming out of World War II, you heard them compared to concentration camps or prisoner of war camps. So, of course, nobody wants to be in things like that. So this became their justification. So the Republicans, the more hardcore Republicans in the early 50s, they passed this Resolution 108 to do a kind of very immediate termination. National Congress of American Indians fought that and managed to slow it down. So liberals then started to say, well, what we need is a slower termination. Right. So termination was still the goal. Assimilation was still the goal. But we have to make sure liberals said that American Indians are ready and that they're prepared for this and that it occurs with their consent.
0: Okay. And was that hard to get?
1: Hard to get the American Indians to consent?
0: Consent, yeah.
1: Generally speaking, yes. You would have a situation where some American Indians would leave the reservations, they would join the mainstream, and then you'd have others in the same tribe who were back on the reservation, and those who'd left the reservation could vote. Now, they'd left the reservation behind. So if they can vote, I mean, if you, under a termination policy, you kind of wind up the tribe's affairs, and if there's any assets or any money owed, it can be distributed, So if you're not on that reservation and severed your ties, here's a way to get some sort of financial benefit.
0: Right. So there was an incentive.
1: Yes. But those on the reservation wanted to preserve. But so much of the rhetoric in the 50s and 60s was toward eventual joining of the mainstream over and over and over again. And of course, it was just assumed. This was the consensus in Washington that that would happen, whether it happened more quickly or down the road. The liberals were saying, the Democrats, down the road, down the road. Get them prepared for this. Do it sensitively with their consent. So you could see something here happening increasingly as the 60s wore on. No tribe wanted to be terminated. No. So under President Johnson, there was a Bureau of Indian Affairs commissioner named Bennett, and there was pressure in the law to terminate a tribe. And he just delayed and delayed and delayed, knowing that no tribe was going to volunteer. And he insisted that that be observed, knowing that the tribe it was the Seneca in upstate New York, that they would never vote for this. So termination was started to die out.
0: And how many tribes, Dean, do you think were terminated under the termination? I'm policy? not going to give you
1: an exact number. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a relatively small number. We're talking like, I would say probably under 20 tribes.
0: Right. Out of how many?
1: Again, I don't have the number, at hand, but it was a very small number. Very small percentage. Let me give yeah. you, I think it would be much better for me to talk about a few that were terminated. Yeah. So a couple of the most notorious examples were the Klamaths in Oregon they were terminated. And the Menominee in Wisconsin, let's focus on Menominee. They had a timber business, and they had a reservation. It was kind of like, if you looked at it on a map, it was almost a perfect square. And in 1954, legislation was passed to terminate both of these tribes. So again, this would have been with that House resolution in the very early 1950s, where you had Republican President Eisenhower and Republican Congress. What happens is the Menominee, they get terminated, and...
0: And they didn't consent.
1: They did not consent. In fact, quite the opposite. So what happened was it was written in the legislation that this would happen at a certain date. Then it was, I think, 1958. And then it was pushed back to 61. By that point, President Eisenhower had changed. And his Interior Department had adopted the principle of consent in 1958. So they got in line with the liberals. But this is early in the Kennedy administration. Termination is going to happen in April of 1961. And the tribe's lobbies to extend it further to delay. The Kennedy people, they just simply say, look, we don't think there's anything we can do in terms of the time frame here. They know they're going to take a hit for this. And the tribe is terminated. Clamonts were terminated like around the same period of time. So what happened is that the Menominee Indian Reservation, federally recognized, became Menominee County, Wisconsin.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So it had all the duties of the county government. Now, all of a sudden, it's got to assume some of the infrastructure and all of that expense that it had not had to do before. And so that put in tremendous burden. And the Menominee, as a result, was a a thriving from the standpoint of the non-Indigenous population. Their economy was thriving with this. That was the perception of this timber industry. You get the stresses and the strains of what termination meant. And this was kind of a wake-up call, that termination didn't work in practice as well as people think. And this also cooled some of the enthusiasm and the drive. It was, again, starting to die out a little bit, and it's dying out even more. But here's the information that I think your listeners would like to know. What happened to the Menominee? They lobbied to be restored. Oh, okay. And it was one of the leading figures was a woman named Ada Deer, and she headed an organization called DRUMS. It's an acronym. And DRUMS and Ada Deer lobbied. Ada Deer eventually became essentially Commissioner of Indian Affairs under Bill Clinton. But the Menominee were restored to federal trust responsibility under Richard Nixon right. as part of a new policy. The yeah. Klamaths were restored under Ronald Reagan. Yeah, What happened to House Concurrent Resolution No. 108? And I imagine people who listen to the podcast, they know something about... I'm very comfortable using that term because I think the people who listen to the podcast are familiar with political and policy terminology, at least maybe somewhat. So there was an effort to try to repeal it. Mm. The response was a very technical political legal argument that said, well, it only applied to the 83rd Congress. So there's no reason to repeal it. I mean, it only covered the two years that that Congress sat from 1953 to 55. For American Indians, this was something much more emotional, as you could imagine. And President Nixon called for it to be repealed, and he'd been in Congress. It was finally repealed under Ronald Reagan. So they took, at least it was a symbolic step. I'm saying a lot about Ronald Reagan here, but Richard Nixon is extraordinarily important to American Indian policy.
0: Yeah, so my knowledge of Richard Nixon, I mean, I think it's similar to most observers of US political history that he's famous for Watergate and obviously getting out of Vietnam and the like, but Watergate and maybe a bit of a tricky player, very kind of Machiavellian political operative. This idea that he is quite revolutionary in the development of United States federal policy as it relates to American Indians is news to me. So talk me through that. What did he do for Native Americans?
1: I like what you said about how he's remembered for Watergate. Yeah. And then probably Vietnam after that. Yeah. Depending on your perspective, if you're more favorable to Nixon, you might remember next, the opening to China. Of course. And the Soviet Union. But it's all either Watergate or foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. The domestic program was surprisingly progressive. Now, to be sure, the political end of that was to bring in more cultural issues like law and order, to make appeals to white Southerners and to bring them into the Republican Party. And now they're the base of the Republican Party when you really look at it in terms of the region. a
0: he's a Californian Republican. He's a Californian
1: Republican. But it was a very different Republican Party than it is today, or even it was under Ronald Reagan. I mean, it was a party that had a growing conservative movement and wing, and then a kind of Northeastern American liberal wing that was more moderate and You could even say liberal progressive on issues of race. And so Nixon understood that the party needed to be a kind of big tent party. And he was a Quaker, so he believed in racial equality. But he was a politician and a cynical politician, a tricky politician, as you were saying. And he knew that he needed to appeal to white Southerners and bring them in. American Indian policy was a little different. So Nixon did a lot of things that were progressive that people don't associate Nixon with.
0: Yeah, Were there many Native American tribes that he would have had contact with in California?
1: Excellent question. So there's a personal connection that he has with Indians that other presidents did not have. He had a somewhat tense relationship with his father. It's not like Lyndon Johnson where he always seemed to be looking for another father figure. Somebody joked that Lyndon Johnson had more surrogate daddies than any other politician. But Nixon kind of found one to some extent in his... College football coach at Whittier College. His name was Wallace Newman and he was a Lusenio Indian.
0: Right. Okay. And
1: Nixon said it's some sort of quotation along the lines of I'd learned more about life and maybe even being a man from like Wallace Newman than any other person. I don't think that quote is quite accurate, but there was some very, very effusive praise of, of Wallace Newman. He mentions him in his memoirs. So somebody asked Rosemary Woods. That was his secretary, and she was kind of famous or infamous during Watergate. Americans became familiar with her name. Somebody asked her, why is Nixon so interested in Indians? And she replied, well, the boss's old college football coach was an American Indian, and because of that reason, the boss has always had a sympathy for American Indians. But I want to mention something else about Nixon's trickiness. I want to bring Robert Kennedy into this. Yeah. Because Robert Kennedy is somebody who gets associated with American Indian rights. Because Robert Kennedy, as a senator, took an interest in this subject. And when he launched his presidential bid, he visited an Indian reservation in South Dakota. So he is associated with this and this kind of very public compassion for American Indians. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson.
0: And this and this. this is, is in the this 60s. This is before the. Before Nixon. The, uh, before the Wounded Knee right. incident. Yeah.
1: He visited Wounded Knee, but before there was a Wounded Knee incident. He visited the massacre site and he showed yeah. a lot of emotion. Now, the interesting thing about this is he's doing this in 60, he's starting to be interested in around 67 and then into 68. Lyndon Johnson is still thinking of running for president. So Johnson, before he exits the presidential race, they have been preparing a statement on Indian policy, the first ever presidential statement on Indian policy released. And they make a point of saying, we're not just doing this because Robert Kennedy said we're doing it. But you know what? It was partly motive. The fact that they said that right. figures something out. When Hubert Humphrey becomes the nominee in 1968 he asks, let's take a look at what Kennedy was doing with Indians, and let's bring that more into our campaign. Mm. Fast forward to Nixon. Nixon says to his chief of staff, Haldeman, please look up Robert Kennedy's position on American Indians. And Haldeman expressed it. He said, the president feels we need to show heart and that we care about people more. Mm. And he thinks the American Indian issue is a good way to begin. So it was part of more generalized political outreach on the part of Nixon to liberal-minded Americans and people who had a kind of sympathy for Indians. Here was a way which he could show a kind of presidential responsibility, that he was president of all the people. But here's the interesting thing. When Robert Kennedy was interested in American Indians, he was interested in Indian education. Mm. Now, again, a rhetorical question. Does that sound like respecting American Indian culture? Or does it sound something assimilationist? I found in the archives here on this research trip, a big poster from the assimilation era in Australia. And it showed all aborigines using modern devices and becoming welders and things like that. And the headline was education is the key. Mm. Robert Kennedy headed a special committee on Indian education, not on Indian sovereignty or Indian self-determination those ideas were coming more to the forefront by younger Indian activists and even the American Indian movement. What was self-determination? It was the idea that American Indian tribes would be able to determine more of their own destiny. They'd be able to control federal programs. And most importantly, there would be no termination. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson missed the boat. He did this Indian statement. He said, we want to end the debate about termination. He didn't say we're going to end termination. Nixon talked about tricky. He saw and his aides saw an opportunity here to make an appeal, so they do an Indian statement, much bigger release, July eighth, nineteen seventy. And in this, Nixon says that he repudiates termination. He says it's morally and legally unacceptable. Okay, and he said, "I believe that self determination among the Indian people can and must be encouraged without the threat of eventual." termination. So the new policy was called self-determination without termination. And so it's extraordinarily important. What Nixon does is he returns land to American Indian tribes, not in cash settling claims, but actually returning important and sacred tracts of land to the Taos Pueblo in 1970, very big. In 1971, there's a Land Settlement Act with the Alaska Native Peoples they return other tracts of land. Was
0: there much opposition from non-Native Americans yes, to this? There So was. say you're a farmer in Alaska, and were there instances where farmers lost their land and that the federal government said this is now going to the Alaskan Native people? It wasn't
1: quite in Alaska as zero-sum as that, because again, yeah. it's, it, it's a very small, sparsely populated population. There was also another motivation. They wanted to build the Alaskan pipeline, and so they needed to settle the land claims there, and they did. But I immediately jumped in and I said yes, because in New Mexico, where the Taos Pueblo were, and the place was called Blue Lake, senators from the western part of the United States, both Democrats and Republicans, tended to support the ranching interests, the grazing interests. You see this also in Australia, too issues about mining and the land and access to that. And so there was resistance to returning Blue Lake, but Nixon just simply decided to overrule them and he pushed ahead on it. He did very few public events as LBJ did for African-Americans. Under LBJ, the major African-American legislation, the civil rights legislation was passed, major signing ceremonies. Nixon didn't have that. And by that point, race relations had reached a certain stage between blacks and whites that those symbolic gestures were not going to be very, very helpful. Right. But this was relatively new, at least for the federal government. So when he returns Blue Lake, he has a major signing ceremony at the White House, and they overtly try to keep the Democrats, would, some the more liberal Democrats who were favorable, keeping them out of the way so Nixon could sign this. And the legislation had caused some hurt feelings in the Congress, and yet Nixon decided that they would go ahead with the signing ceremony. So what happens here is that when Nixon leaves office, I could go through other things that Nixon did. You think of Watergate, to get back to what you said, and you think of people gathering around the White House with their cars, with bumper stickers that said honk for impeachment, things like that. You didn't have that from American Indians. So a reporter for the American Indian Press Association, just after Nixon resigned, put it this way. The Nixon administration, beginning January 20th, 1969, has been in the eyes of even its most critical observers, one of the most active in the field of American Indian affairs since that of the so-called Indian New Deal, under Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1930s and 1940s. The Nixon Indian program, defined as self-determination without termination, went a long way toward making that phrase a major phrase of American Indians. Statement in the analysis referred to the famed Nixon Indian message. So what happened was that President Ford followed this policy and reaffirmed it. So did President Carter. President Reagan took it a little further, talking about a government-to-government-to-government relationship between the federal government, the states, and the tribes making them equal. And the Reagan period saw the passage of legislation that permitted and recognized the right of American Indians to have casinos and gaming.
0: And that's quite a big industry now, isn't it, on the reservation? It is.
1: And this shows you also how states can try to interfere because it got going because the tribe that were in the Western states and also some of them that were in the Eastern states federally recognized, they didn't fall under state law. So they had no restrictions about winnings, the jackpots. So if you wanted to really game, you would go to an Indian reservation, one of these startup casinos where you could become much richer. And so that's the competition. The Reagan legislation gave states a little bit of a say, but this was a tremendous boon. And so what happens is that senators from gaming states like Nevada don't like this. Some of them liberals, people like Harry Reid. Remember Harry Reid, who was Senate Majority Leader? They want to start to look back at that legislation and maybe modify it right? In ways that are not as advantageous to American Indians. And it's fascinating how much American Indian life and policy has changed. A couple of prominent scholars wrote that by 1988, American Indian policy had progressed from what we talked about at the beginning, almost denial of tribal sovereignty to almost full recognition of it. Yeah. I mean, it's really an amazing change.
0: So, Dean, you've been in Australia for a few months and you've got another few months to go, I think, of your Fulbright Fellowship here and you're looking at comparisons between how Australia's approached Indigenous rights here and obviously the US experience of which you're extremely familiar What's really struck you about the differences? Because, I mean, listening to you talk about the development over even just the 20th century, it seems there are huge differences. I mean, the fact that it's federal law, not state law, so Indigenous Australians came under state law jurisdiction except for the territories where the commonwealth government was able to have jurisdiction indigenous people in australia weren't counted in the census until the the 67 referendum they didn't get voting rights on the electoral roll until 1962 land rights and native title wasn't until the high court decided in 92 in the mabo decision and i mean treaties we don't have treaties with indigenous australians There's calls for some, and the state of Victoria that we're sitting in at the moment, they've just started that process. There's calls for some at a maricata, at a national level, but incredibly different ways of engaging with the Indigenous communities in our countries.
1: I think you really summarised a lot of the differences. I'll just kind of build on what you were mentioning. The thing that struck me most was the power of the states, And there you see a similarity with another form of race relations in the United States, which deals with blacks and whites. Mm. And so a lot of the resistance that I saw in Queensland with Joe Bajelke peterson that reminded me a lot of George Wallace and African-American rights. And people in the Australian press made those comparisons and those connections, which I found fascinating. And I did not know that Queensland, at least it was referred to in one article, and I think others referred to it as the deep north.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it has a Traditionally been more conservative yeah. than other parts of Australia, that's true.
1: I'm sure as there are parts of the United States, the quote-unquote deep south, places like Georgia that are changing politically yeah. as they become more Diverse. And well,
0: three Greens MPs were just yeah. elected in Brisbane, which Greens is a very far-left party in Australian politics. So, yes, things do change. And,
1: you know, when I come to Australia, I'm almost inevitably making these comparisons. And my first trip to Australia was in 2007. This is going off a little bit on a tangent. Kevin Rudd was elected, and he talked about Queensland values and Queensland this, and, que- and I didn't understand all of this. I think Kevin Rudd is very comparable to Jimmy Carter.
0: Right. I wonder yeah. if he'd enjoy the comparison.
1: <laughs> Increasingly, Jimmy Carter received seen as sort of a beloved figure in America. I thought
0: he's, he tops the list of, of worst presidents of the United well, States. Well, you, you know what? He's, <laughs>
1: there's a lot of revisionism that's going on with, with Jimmy Carter. Yeah. I mean, certainly he never rehabilitated his reputation. But it's interesting, both of them kind of came from these areas of the country that were not part of the Northeastern elite. And it's also interesting that I think Julia Gillard might have been more of like a Ted Kennedy figure. You're tied to more of the labor unions of the traditional part of the labor party. And so Carter managed to survive his challenge and Rudd wasn't. But at any rate, I mean, so you have Queensland, you have Western Australia, very, very important. And the fact that the states had this power, it's an important thing, I think, for the listeners to think about. I think it goes back to the fact that the United States revolted and rebelled. Against the British Crown. Yeah. And so there was a break. And what happened is that the U.S. federal government inherited a lot of the powers of the British Crown in foreign affairs. And so Indians are written into the U.S. Constitution.
0: And how they referred okay. to in the U.S. Briefly, Constitution. Yeah.
1: But significantly. Yeah. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the various states and with the Indian tribes. So there you have a statement about who is responsible. For dealing with American Indian tribes. And of course, it's the president who negotiates. So you've got an almost exclusive power here for the federal government. And that was recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court in a case around 1831, 1832 called Worcester versus Georgia, where the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice John Marshall, the great Chief Justice, as he's known in the United States, basically made the argument that I kind of summarized, that it is like the British crown and that tribes are like sovereign entities and the state has no authority over them.
0: Right, and it's interesting in that clause of the Constitution that you've got Indian tribes referred to in the same clause as foreign nations. Absolutely. And obviously the states. So this sort of idea that they are separate sovereign entity is there from the get-go.
1: It's there from the get-go. Yeah. And again, I think that there are other assumptions here that go into this in terms of distinctions with African-Americans and why the states were technically the U.S. government has power over voting rights and things like that. But it allowed, I think, for practical political reasons, unfortunately, the Southern states after the Civil War to enact discriminatory legislation. But ultimately, they were able to reassert themselves. The federal government was in the LBJ era, the Martin Luther King Jr. era with the civil rights legislation. But extremely important that distinction so when Nixon wanted to act, he could act very forcefully. He didn't have to really worry about the states. And in some ways, he didn't have to worry as much about Congress legislation. He did. But he could issue that statement and basically say, I'm not going to terminate any more tribes. So he could act forcefully. Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam when they're implementing the self-determination policy in the 1970s, that's a similarity. A lot of this is developing in the 1970s for reasons that are more grassroots oriented, but they have to be conscious of states' rights. Malcolm Frazier certainly was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we've, we've just experienced two years, almost three years now of, uh, the states asserting their rights through the COVID-19 pandemic where our states have power over health and evidently their borders in public health emergencies. So they really determine your lives. They touch your lives so much. And for the Australian experience, we probably haven't had that distinction in our federal system between state and federal powers in our faces for a very long time. And this is a reminder. But in the Indigenous space, this has made things much more difficult, I think, in Australia. You know,
1: when you look at the similarities and the differences between the two countries, kind of a similarity is that in the early 1970s and mid-1970s, a lot of the people in the Nixon White House who were dealing with American Indian policy had little expertise in it. So they didn't come with some of the assumptions Mm. that maybe people in the past had had. And they were willing to make change. Something similar here in Australia, too. People like Barry Dexter, who was on the council, who were Aboriginal Affairs and was the permanent secretary in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs established under Whitlam. Nugget Coombs as well. So that's, I think, a very important similarity that people could come to this with a fresh pair of eyes and look at things. I think also, too, there are international connections. Australia was very mindful of UN credit to the United Nations and criticism from foreign countries. Both countries were vulnerable on this. President Carter tried to raise the issue of apartheid in South Africa. His vice president did when he went down there. And the white minority government of South Africa said, well, what about your treatment of American Indians? The East Germans criticized Ben Shifley in the early 1950s. This was a vulnerability that both countries had their race relations during the Cold War era. So there are these areas of, I think, tremendous similarity between the two countries. There was a backlash in the United States about land rights when all of a sudden the state of Maine, two tribes there claimed because a treaty hadn't been properly ratified. They claimed two-thirds of the state of Maine. Then all of a sudden you saw the reaction against land rights and some of the resistance that's similar in Australia. What happened in that case was President Carter took four years, but they negotiated legislation to give 300,000 acres to these two tribes. Right. And so you kind of have that back and forth and give and take. So,
0: Dean... Tell me, a big issue at the moment in Australia is discussion over an Indigenous voice to Parliament that would be enshrined in our constitution. There's not a lot of detail about what it would do or how it would be constructed, and that will come, no doubt, in in the next couple of years as we debate this and then ultimately it goes to a referendum. But how do you see Australia in that debate learning from the United States?
1: Well, I'll answer the question by looking at the past. I did see in my research, back up to the 1960s, a lot of Aboriginal activists in Australia, Aboriginal rights activists, many of them non-Aboriginal in terms of, or non-Indigenous in terms of their background, looking and making comparisons with the United States, New Zealand, Canada, and saying we have to have a land rights policy here. We have to have those principles enshrined. So I think that if you look at writing Indigenous Australians into the Constitution, You would certainly look at that clause of the U.S. Constitution and see where that was. It'd be something that's stated simply along those lines. One of the difficulties, one of the ways which Australia, I think, struggled, and I think this was part of the fact that there was a lack of treaties, is creating proper structures in the past for dealing with Aboriginal affairs, Indigenous affairs, and having an Indigenous voice. So there was the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, and you know there was the National Aboriginal Council, and then there was an Office of Aboriginal Affairs. And it was the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. Then there was the Aboriginal Development Commission. There was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Commission, the ATSIC. And I don't want to be prescriptive here. In the United States, it was different. There was always the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It became a target of criticism. It's being too establishment, you know. Does it still exist? Yes. Yeah. And it too top-down and things like that. But it was there and it serviced and served the federally recognized tribes. So it became a target of young activists who criticized it young indigenous activists, American Indian activists, and also kind of more conservative voices who said it wasted money and things along those lines. But it was something. It was there. And it will be interesting to see how the entire debate unfolds. It's a sense of, as as I've been coming to Australia and doing the research, it's like, okay, what comes first? And it seems like Australia is going bigger and bigger, and it has a large, encompassing concept of reconciliation, of which the voice to parliament, treaty... All of these other, used to be that people stressed that having a treaty, and it didn't go anywhere from the federal government's point of view. People like Malcolm Fraser, very good on race. Looking back, a lot of people would say, but he had reservations about a treaty. He liked the idea of a united Australia, and Mm. he thought this would be divisive. That was his perspective.
0: And that perspective still exists in Australia, that there is a sense that putting one category of people one race of people mm-hmm. in the constitution over others divides australia doesn't unite australia
1: and it's an older argument here in australia yeah. i mentioned joe bajelke peterson of course queensland discriminated it did a lot t- against its indigenous peoples and so forth but when land rights started to become an issue in australia beginning in the late 60s and early 70s then he made this kind of argument saying well We don't want to create separate people. It's apartheid. So he used that language. And I think that's something separate here with Australia, different from the United States. You're part of the Commonwealth. And your dealings here in Australia with the Commonwealth and with South Africa and apartheid, it's a little different than the United States. And Menzies, of course, he wanted to keep the Commonwealth together and things along those lines. But you will hear those arguments in the United States as well. And when I mentioned Maine, then you started to hear the Maine Indian Claims Act and the dispute in Maine. That's when all of a sudden a lot of the terminationist language started to come back. Right. About creating a country of where everyone shares in equal rights and responsibilities. And it wasn't just Maine. In the 1970s, there was a group that was formed out west called the Interstate Congress for Equal Rights and Responsibilities. And it sounds wonderful, right? I mean, who could be against equal rights and responsibilities? But it was against, again, the idea of distinct or unique rights Mm. for an indigenous population. And you know, this is quintessentially 1970s. The Montana branch of that was called MOD, and that stood for Montanans opposing discrimination. So they used this language, whether it was anti-apartheid here and also anti-discrimination in Australia and anti-discrimination in the United States, as a way of opposing, as you said, the granting of something unique in terms of a voice and a space for an indigenous population. I think that if we studied other countries, we would find similar tensions.
0: Well, Dean, this has been hugely insightful and I really do thank you, not just for the discussion today, but for coming to Australia and and sharing your knowledge and, of course, doing your research into this comparative study of Indigenous policymaking in the United States and Australia. I think there's a lot to learn from each other and I think we can all benefit from that. So thank you so much for joining me on Afternoon Light.
1: Thank you.
0: The Afternoon light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.